in the presence of insufficient information about how to make a decision, you do your best and you move ahead and make the decision. It's better to make a mistake of commission than omission. And if it turns out that the decision you've made isn't quite right, you do a mid-course correction. You're listening to MIT Club of Boston's podcast. This is your host, Gayatri Aryan. Dear listeners, a quick note before we start this episode. We started this podcast series with the goal of bringing MIT, our beloved institute, closer to you by highlighting its impact on the society through its programs and alums. In the last few months, the world is facing an extreme crisis due to a disease commonly referred to as COVID-19. As we record this episode, more than 1.5 million cases have been confirmed worldwide and the numbers are still on the upward trend. Amid these unprecedented times, while we practice social distancing, us staying connected has become all the more important. With COVID-19 pandemic presenting a series of challenges, that is where our focus will be for the next set of episodes. With that said, I would like to now introduce the guest for this episode, Paul Levy. Paul has most recently been president and CEO of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, one of the nation's preeminent academic medical centers, providing state-of-the-art clinical care, research and teaching in affiliation with Harvard Medical School. His accomplishments included turning around a near-bankrupt organization and producing continuous profitable operations for the following seven years. Paul received national attention in 2009 for leading the workers at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to avoid hundreds of layoffs by engaging them in crowdsourcing of ideas to save money as the hospital faced deficits due to the national recession. Paul's career spans many industry sectors. He famously led the Boston Harbor cleanup, a harbor that was so dirty that if you scooped up a cupful of water and poured it back in, you would be breaking pollution laws. Paul also served as a member of MIT Corporation and has been Executive Dean for Admission at Harvard Medical School. It's an honor to have you for this conversation, Paul. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I imagine you appreciate the challenges our countries, or should I say the world's healthcare system is facing at the moment, um, given that you have led a hospital in your past and even blogged your experience quite meticulously. Um, any gems or lessons learned that you feel you want to share or reflect upon? Well, it would be a little presumptuous to to give advice in this circumstance because Truly, the system, the healthcare system is not designed to handle this. Although every hospital and clinic has the ability to surge, uh, to handle surges in patient volumes when there are upswings in disease, like, you know, an upsurge in the flu or whatever, um, it really wasn't designed to handle what we're going through now. So what you're seeing, I think, in addition to, to people's good intentions, is a tremendous amount of creativity that's being put to bear to get through all this. Um, and um, it's very hard to do that in real time. But when you think about 
taking care of sick patients, there's a lot of work involved. And it's meticulous work, and it happens in real time. And to, at the same time, everybody is involved in doing that, to also redesign the system that you've had for decades to handle this incredible level of acuity, length of stay of these patients, and the, the sheer volumes of the patients is a huge, it's, it's a huge endeavor. I've been very impressed with some of the things that have happened, though, that are likely to change healthcare for a long time into the future, uh, not only in the U.S., but in, in other countries. For example, I was talking to a friend who's the chief medical officer in Saskatchewan, for the province of Saskatchewan in Canada. And they've been talking for years about what it would take to do telehealth and how they could arrange the billing to pay for those appointments. Years and years of discussion. And then between March 24th and April 7th, they invented and put it into effect virtually overnight. Um, and similar things are happening in the U.S. Um, out of necessity. I think some of those things will be excellent in the future. We know, for example, that we don't have to go to the doctor for a lot of things, that we can do things by telephone or by email. There are also remote devices that we can attach to ourselves in our homes that could send data to our doctors. And in the past, all of that was slowed down because the doctors in the hospitals couldn't get paid for it. And now they will. And that's to the good. Right. I like to say that in in human capability, we trust. It's it's amazing when the need of our comes, you know, we somehow find the the right thing and the right way to solve the challenge. Now, you yourself have had quite a few challenging positions, um, you know, along with being the CEO of um, one of the top hospitals in the country. You've also held um, an architect role at Boston Harbor Cleanup. Um, now, that was quite a political role as well, Paul. Um, how did you manage that? Um, because I see that there is some parallel between um you know, uh, some of the leadership traits that is required in the current times. Um, these are definitely unprecedented times, but at core, the challenges are quite similar. How do you bring people together and um, direct them, you know, uh, unilaterally? Um, talk to us about that a little bit. Well, the truth is you don't direct them. Um, if you have an organization full of professionals, in the case of hospitals, it's doctors and nurses, in the case of um, the Water Resources Authority that I was running in the 1980s and early 1990s, a lot of professional engineers and a lot of other very skilled people. And the idea that you as the director or the CEO of that organization are going to direct from the top and tell them what they need to do every day is crazy. Um, and you wouldn't want to do that anyway, because they're the experts. So what you try to do, I think the, the common lesson, which is really what you're asking about, the common philosophy for me of leadership and management is let's trust the people who are there to do the job. 
they're well-intentioned, intelligent, thoughtful, highly trained people who, who are mission-oriented. They, they want to get the job done well. They want to feel good about it. They want to feel good about their place in the organization and so on. And so given that, it's, it's, you, you might think it remarkable that a lot of places don't do very well because they all have these well-intentioned, thoughtful people. But what happens in organizations and bureaucracies is, is obstacles emerge, sometimes institutional obstacles, sometimes personal obstacles, and the like. And it seems to me that the role of the, the CEO or the other senior managers is to facilitate things so people can get down to work and do what they're there for in the first place. Um, sometimes that requires some behavioral changes. For example, I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you that some of the doctors in the hospital in which I worked had pretty big egos. Uh, they're, they're among the best doctors in the world in their field. They've been recognized for that. <clears throat> But there's, there was often a part of their training that was lacking. And the part of their training that was lacking often was uh, training in interpersonal skills and in teamwork. And when you're going through a major strategic upheaval or a strategic plan, you need people to work together and to work well together. So a lot of what I spent my time working on was modeling behavior that would be more conducive to the kind of creativity and advancement that you hope from an organization. And whether you're running a hospital or a university or a water authority or any kind of company, I think that's the job of the CEO, in essence, to be a coach for the organization to move ahead. Lead from behind, I guess, is, is what you're um, alluding well, to. Well, it's, it's not exactly leading from behind. It's leading as though you have no authority. And what I mean by that is that although you have the power as the head of the organization to impose performance standards and reviews and salaries and all that, those things are not motivational to, to professionals who are working with you. What's motivational to them is their profession their professional interests, wanting to do a good job, and feeling a sense of accomplishment and personal growth. And, and so if, if you frame things in terms of what would be motivational to them, rather than what's usually talked about as being motivational in business schools, um, I think you can make a lot more progress. The word empowerment uh, comes to my mind. and um... It's more than empowerment, though. It's what it is, is people have to feel, and it has to be real, that you trust them, that you value their opinion, that you'll have their back when a mistake occurs, that you won't be carping and complaining but that you'll help the people in the organization learn from the mistake. Because after all, mistakes don't happen usually because they're intended. Right. We call them mistakes because they're mistakes. Right. Um, and very often a mistake that a person makes 
is actually the result of a systemic problem in the organization. It's not a result of a personal decision they made. And so if you think about it that way, the mistake that they made could have been made by any other well-intentioned person in the organization. And your job as a senior leader is to investigate that systemic problem and and then try to invent some experiments to solve it. You're also giving me some parenting tips, I guess, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) It's much harder to do with children. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, I wanted to touch upon your uh, leadership position at uh, Beth Israel and um, the the unique position that you were in where there was a need of uh, cutting costs and, you know, there was essentially a reflex of um, layoffs. And you also recently wrote a Harvard Business article about the current situation and how the leaders today can potentially, you know, reconsider layoffs so that, you know, that just doesn't become a reactive solution to the current situation. If you can help us tie the two from your playbook, that would be great. Well, um, back in 2009, during the global financial crisis, about halfway through our fiscal year, my CFO and COO came in to tell me that instead of projecting a $20 million surplus for the year, we were looking at a $20 million deficit for the year. And they recommended to me that we eliminate 400 positions, or about 6% of our workforce. And I said to them, well, I don't want to do that. Um, the worst time to lay off people is during a recession because it's hard for them to get a job and their spouse or partner might already be out of a job. Um, And at the time, I think it was uh, about 12% of the workforce that wasn't working at that point. Um, And um, that instead, why didn't we ask people what they could suggest they might all be willing to do in the form of sacrifice to save money to save jobs so that we wouldn't have to lay off people, whether it was salary uh, freezes or reduction in the 401k contribution or those kinds of things. And they pretty well thought I was crazy, my COO and CFO, but we went ahead and did that. And uh, in the course of two weeks, we came up with a plan that had tremendous buy-in from the entire hospital including exempting the low-wage workers from any of those cuts, which meant that everybody else would have to take a bigger cut. And um, we not only got through the year without the layoffs, but we also um, ended up with a surplus, a $10 million surplus at the end of the year instead of a $20 million deficit. So it was a powerful experience and, and very satisfying for everybody involved. So in the in the HBR article, um, along with a couple of colleagues, we, we wrote about this idea that the initial tendency during a cataclysmic economic time is to say, let's eliminate jobs. But we suggested in the article that that could be short-sighted um, and not as effective as as this kind of crowdsourcing might be. And also, if, if you believe that there will be a turnaround in the economy at some point, and, and you're going to start growing again, 
wouldn't it be better to have those people still on staff rather than to rehire? Um, and in terms of morale and all those things. So we, we wrote that article and what has been heartening since is the people at Harvard Business Review have been hearing from companies that read it and that decided to change how they would approach this situation as a result. So I think we saved some jobs um, and also helped some managers think a bit differently about that kind of situation. That's great because there is definitely talks about the economic recovery and the shape of it being a V-shape um, this time around. Remains to be seen whether that will be true or not. But to your point, if the if the recovery was to take that shape and you know, as we expect, um, you know, things to come back to normal, rehiring process and retraining your new hires, you know, ends up being a longer process than saving your staff for a little bit um, who have the expertise already of your business. That's correct. And also, if the economy does bounce back, those people you laid off could be incredibly valuable to your competitors. And correct. <laughs> that is true. Um, one of the other things about um, the current situation that we are in, um, there is an anticipation, and I believe in that, that there will be some behavioral change um, that all of us as individuals, as remote workers will experience. Um, because all of a sudden, uh, bureaucracy around many of the processes that existed have been dropped because that is the need of the hour. Um, you mentioned telehealth. Um, there was a lot of um, desire to get that implemented in the United States as well. Um, but, you know, there were rules and regulations around it which have been parked. I, you know, hesitate to use the word dropped because I imagine that once things come back to normal, um, you know, security and safety of patient will, will come back to the helm. Um, but going Going back to the the change in behavior that we humans will experience because of the situation, um, any thoughts around that, Paul? Well, <clears throat> we talked about the telehealth example, but there are a lot of other things that are happening that aren't so uh, big, but represent uh, improvements in efficiency or the way work flows in organizations. For example, uh, I'm on the board of a senior housing organization called Two Life Communities here in Boston. And our CFO, Karen Edland, was telling us, uh, telling the board a story about in the past when you, um, if, if you were working in the organization and you needed approval for a contract or a purchase order or whatever, you would have to walk around to various offices and get everybody to sign off on it. Um, manually. And they realized that with uh, being required to work at home, that that wouldn't work. But but the train still had to run, things still had to get purchased and so on. And um, some of the people have been familiar with the, the, uh, the company called DocuSign, which is used by investment bankers all the time to um, sign uh, legal documents online. And so they instituted that for their own people in the course of three days and, and changed the way things are done to everybody's satisfaction. So uh, one way to think about this is to think about 
the 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 work at home and the stressful situation of of the COVID virus, and to think about how work has changed, and to think about the things that we would least miss, uh, or that we least miss today about the old work environment, and how would we keep them from coming back in the future? Um, it's a tremendous opportunity to to improve. Uh, the processes that exist in every organization. As you suggest, there will still be some need for rules and regulations, for legal reasons and financial reasons and accountability reasons and all that. But we all know that there can be a lot of changes made to make that whole process more efficient. Great. I hope um, this phase passes us and our species a little more unscathed um, than, than we are currently seeing. Mm. Um, any any parting advice, Paul, based on your experience in so many years, um, how to deal with, with change in general? Well, I think uh, I've always had a philosophy, for better or worse, that in the, in the presence of insufficient information about how to make a decision you do your best and you move ahead and make the decision that that it's better to make a mistake of commission than omission and if it turns out that the decision you've made isn't quite right you do a mid-course correction but if you're paralyzed by the uncertainty of what's going on so that you don't decide then the world passes you by and by the time you get around to deciding, things have gotten out of control and you've lost the opportunity to have control of your destiny. Um, so I would say to people, be strong, be thoughtful, certainly be empathetic to the people with whom you're working because everyone's going through a hard time. But if something, if in your gut, you know that something needs to be done, just do it, get it done and move on to the next next challenge because there, there will be another challenge an hour or two later. Um, and it's better not to let them pile up. So for what that's worth, that's always been my philosophy. And so far it's worked okay. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Paul Levy, along with his colleagues, published a HBR article recently articulating their thoughts on layoffs in these trying times. To summarize, their advice to peer leaders is to communicate openly, share the pain, consider crowdsourcing ideas with employees, review all options, even the less conventional ones, and finally is to have ice in the belly. If you're curious, a link to their article has been put up in the episode description. We hope you found this valuable. Thank you for listening and we hope to have you back for our next episode. Stay safe.